In this slightly alternative Maker Series podcast, I'm talking to the jewellery designer and maker, Catherine Barber. So how are you, Catherine, today? You all right? I am good, yes, yeah. Busy period coming up, but I am I'm good, yeah. It's enjoyable to be busy. So yeah, all good. And you? I'm all right. Again, busy, busy as always, but um <laughs> I somewhat think my brain thrives in busyness. <laughs> okay. The more you give me, the better I do. If I don't have lots on, I sort of uh procrastinate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as my my buzzword is procrastination. <laughs> procrastination station is what I call myself a lot of the time so yeah yes I I can relate to that (laughs) there's nothing there's nothing like the last two minutes (laughs) of a deadline (laughs) (laughs) best work then my best work exactly yeah (laughs) so I'm just gonna get straight to it and ask you the first question so I want to I want to delve into how you even got into anything creative when did it start did it start in school or before school um yes can you talk a bit about that yeah so i've always always loved anything creative so in primary school i always loved our art sessions of painting and drawing um i never used to think i was that good at painting and drawing and it was when my um, best friend sarah she got her ears pierced so we were 13 at the time and I wanted to make her a pair of earrings. So I had a pipe cleaner that I unwound and threaded these beads on that were in my mum's button box and made her these earrings. And they were very, very shoddy. But it kind of opened my eyes up to that my hands could make something that somebody could wear. And that's when the creative side, I think, for me, it lifted off of things that are on the paper. So painting and drawing and collaging. And I suddenly became aware that I could use that sort of creative energy to make things which I automatically felt much more comfortable and confident with. So that's where it really sort of started to me, for me. And then that turned into sort of this um, love of beads and collecting beads um, and learning about beads. And it just, it all went from there, really. So, yeah, I've, it's always been the 3D for me that's really sort of ignited my imagination. So being able to make things that you can wear or, you know, pick up and hold, that's where sort of my passion has always, always been. And there's something lovely about being able to give something as well, isn't there, about that you've made from, yeah, your own mind, your own hands, and then giving that as a gift. That's a really lovely thing as a young person as well. Yeah. Well, you don't have your own money, do you, when you're younger? So, you know, we've all done those little hand-painted cards for grannies and and mums and granddads (laughs) and things. And like you say, being able to make something and give it to someone and say, well, I made this, it just brings on a whole whole new meaning. It's um, It makes the object more precious. And, and then when you see that person wearing it as well, it's that sort of validation. You think, oh, they really did love the gift. You know, they really appreciated it. So, yeah, it's a gift that keeps giving to both people, really. Lovely. Where did you go from, so your friend's now wearing your beautiful earrings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you've from what we've talked about before you've started quite an extensive bead collection yeah when what happened after this yeah so I was just became obsessed with beads so um I just I loved their bright colors they reminded me of sweets and I think that's probably what (laughs) initially started this passion and this love affair and you could keep them in glass jars and bead shops were just to me they were like adult sweet shops and I really do think that's where that love came from so the collection grew. Um, people would buy me beads on their holidays. I just would make my parents drive me to bead shops all around the country. And the collection grew and I started to make more pieces. And I had so many that I thought, well, I, I can't wear it all. So I started selling it. I was at secondary school at the time and I used to sell it in my morning tutor group sessions. Oh. I'd just take it in my rucksack with my pat lunch, get it out in the morning. And even my tutor group, she'd be buying stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd sell like 25 quid's worth in a morning, which, you know, at that age, as a teenager, it blew, it really blew my mind. And yeah, I'd do it every couple of weeks, take it in. And then um, the, the same tutor said, well, do you want to have a stall at the school fete? And Aww. we'll take a portion of the profits for yeah. your, your, form, um, your form group. 
So I did this stall. I had to, my dad made me all the jewelry stands and it was like this fully fledged little shop and people bought it. So yeah, from that little humble start of just collecting bees because I was fascinated with them, turned into this like little mini fashion jewelry business at sort of the age of like 14 kind of thing. So yeah, that's where it all kind of started. That's really lovely that you were encouraged at school. Which school did you go to? I went to South Moulton Community College um, and I did art the whole way through Mm. and I decided to take art as a GCSE and I the jewellery had kind of been separate to that so I was selling it in in the tutor group and selling it at the school fete and my art teacher Miss Farrell she was such a fantastic teacher she was so passionate about it and I remember she had um, she used to get uh, an amount of money she had to spend on art books and in my it must have been my second to last year she bought this book it was really expensive, so she'd spent quite a bit of budget on it. It was called Africa Adorned. Oh, so wow. the book's it's actually out of print now, but it was mm-hmm. it was this huge like A3 book, and it was full of these incredible pictures of um, body adornment that was being worn across Africa, mm-hmm. so from Egypt down to sort of Swaziland. And of course, so much of it was beaded. Um, so she bought this book, which I just thought was incredible, and I spent the lessons poring over it. Mm-hmm. She said to me, well, why don't you do um, one of your final projects for your GCSE on jewellery? And I just thought, wow, this, I didn't think, I'd, I'd separated it from the art at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't drawing, it wasn't painting, so mm. it wasn't, it wasn't worthy of that. And then when she said that and gave me the green light, that, and I think that, but it was really her doing that that made me think, oh goodness, this could be, it could be something. So yeah, I did a, a sort of a, one of my final projects was on sub-saharan um african body adornment and i made this project um and it was graded and it counted towards the grade and i got an a and that yeah so with her saying that and supporting me that really was a great a great start for that because she didn't dismiss it that's so lovely yeah and she could see potential there as well which when you're that age i i couldn't see there was going to be anything so i do i think i owe her credit really for that and yeah if she sees this maybe she'll uh she can big up can make- <laughs> <laughs> i was also very lucky to have an amazing art teacher and i think when a lot of school work is about academic isn't it yeah. and it's like having that art well, for me anyway, and it sounds a bit like for you, having that art place where you can pour over things that are you just love, it's like a little oasis amongst the academia. Absolutely. And it's for me, uh, my art teacher and um, my drama teacher, because I was very much into drama, they really saved those years because otherwise I would have really struggled. Yeah, same for me, my drama teacher again, she was brilliant. And you're, I think it's a space where you're just allowed to be yourself. And there's not such a, a rigid curriculum for those subjects, or there certainly wasn't back then mm. anyway. Yeah. And you have this freedom. So like her saying to me, because the list of the projects for GCSE, jewellery was not one of them. And she said to me, well, we, it's okay, we can put that in. Yeah. So having that freedom and realising that you don't have to stick to this sort of, um, you know, sitting at a desk, doing your work, yeah. listening to the teacher at the front of the classroom. Yeah. That, like like for you, that just made school for me. Like my double art sessions that I used to have when I took GCC, was, it was the, the my favourite time of the week. It really was. <laughs> and I liked some of the academic subjects, but I just, I didn't feel that connect, that passion or connection to them. Sure. I wasn't as, I sat there and did it because I had to. But yeah. yeah, the art classes were, they were just total enjoyment yeah that's so lovely to hear Uh, yeah I can completely relate (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so how did you do in your GCSEs 12 GCSEs overall so I did I did quite well in the academic subjects but my two A's were art and drama so at the end too (laughs) (laughs) it's quite clear isn't it that we're taking the right path and do you know what those were the only grades I was concerned about actually was art and drama And when I left school, um, applying to college, I was torn between BTEC Performing Arts Mm. and BTEC Art and Design. And of course, all my peers, they were kind of um, under the impression that anyone that went to do one of the creative, especially a BTEC and not A-levels, that you hadn't done well at school. So, and I hate to say it, but I did end up on the art course with lots of people who hadn't done well at school and they weren't really interested and and Mm. most of them kind of stopped that path during the first year 
but again, I, I hope things have changed since then. It was very much viewed as the path for people that were not academic, um, just to keep you yeah. in higher education a bit longer, but without actually really mm. believing that that was going to turn into something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, I think you have you had to really know your own mind, didn't you, when you were choosing yes. college courses? Yeah, that's a real shame that in that situation all those years ago, and hopefully it is different now, but that, yeah creatives yeah. are still seen perceived as well there's no future in that so yeah. why on earth are you learning that yeah um, not taken seriously yeah. that's mm. that's the thing isn't it sort of well it's just a hobby it's you know something that you do do because you enjoy well yeah. why can't you get a job that you enjoy like God and forbid. the thing God is forbid. the thing is if someone actually looked at it you know creative industries there's you know there's a good amount of wages there you know high-end wages yep. there and I, anyway I could go on and on about yeah. it but, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. but what happened after school then so you've done your GCSEs you yeah, went on so to college went on to college and I did a, a BTEC in art and design and I specialized in textiles again it, I was still drawn to that 3D element so the textiles was it was it was quite free um but I it was jewellery that kept coming back for me. So I'd, I'd make kind of all of the textile projects about things that like small items that you could wear. I was always drawn to like the miniature. There was a, um, a jewellery maker, she's still around called Grainy Norton. And she does these beautiful brooches with teeny tiny collected objects. Oh, wow. And it, it fitted into the textiles, luckily, because it was all sort of these found mm. things. And I did a whole project on her work. So it was always there running throughout. Mm. And it was one afternoon we were all told to go and have a look at university prospectuses in the library. They're paper ones, there's no internet. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we went down to the library. And I, I hadn't even thought about going to university. It wasn't, nobody in my family had been. I hadn't even, I never thought very far ahead, to be honest. It just wasn't a bit of a dream ahead in the clouds. Um, and me and my friend, we went down. Um, we sort of went to Skive Off, to be honest with you. We're looking through all of these prospectuses and I saw that there was jewellery de design as a degree, which I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that. I thought, hang on, you're telling me for three whole years I can just study jewellery. <laughs> Went through all these prospectuses and found 10 universities that were doing it. Wow. So that, yeah, which just was incredible because I was like, oh, I didn't make a mistake. It is a real course. <laughs> um, so that was it. I was like, well, I'm going. Of course I'm going to go and do that. And my dad took me on all these university open days. Um, and I eventually um, ended up at Portsmouth University studying three-dimensional studies. And I specialized in jewelry. So the course was very, very broad. Um, mm -hmm. There were furniture makers, people again working in textiles, glasswork, um, ceramicists. Wow. It was very broad. It was a great place to be. Um, and I had brilliant fun for three years. Uh, the projects I worked on so I did some work with resin I made these like again sweets these sort of <laughs> sweet beads that unscrewed and then they screwed onto a ring part I did um, some mobile phone bag accessories that you wore that would be like nightclub wear which is very big back then <laughs> projects about paper so it was it was really good for kind of um, doing research um, looking at different materials but I didn't actually do any um, sort of silversmithing on the course mm. so the pieces were um, quite eclectic and not always very wearable. <laughs> they weren't commercial at all. Um, and I I did, I felt like on the course, like commerciality was a bit of a bad word, to be mm -hmm. honest. The tutors, I think they sort of instilled in us that you can make one piece and sell it for thousands and, and that will be how you make your living. And absolutely some people do. <laughs> but, you know, when you've got furniture designers on the course and jewellery designers, yes. we probably needed a little bit more. Um, it's too general what they were saying. It's way too general. And there wasn't there wasn't really any guidance on how to get a job afterwards. Um, so I, I finished the course. And I did feel a bit sort of, oh, goodness, well, hmm. where does this go? Because I can't. The jewellery I was making was it was wacky. It was far out. So it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to be able to put that stuff in galleries. It still needed a lot of work and refining. Yeah. Um, and I was really lucky. I kind of got my first job um, with a small silver jewellery company. So the degree, I got my foot in the door because I'd done the degree. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely worthwhile doing. I still apply those sort of research principles to now. But I do felt it it didn't fully prepare me for the world of work. So, yeah, it, yeah it, there could have been some more practical elements in there, which would have helped. Um, 
but it, it led me on to it and I definitely needed the degree to get to get the job so yeah so it could work in that respect yeah and so you're working for a, a silver designer and yeah. um what happens then so I went in as a junior um and it was very different to university it was lots of um it was technical drawing so it was proper design spec sheets, ruler, a pencil that you sharpen every two seconds, a world away from my massive sketchbooks of loads of charcoal and bits falling out and stuff, you know, these sketchbooks wouldn't even close. So it was a bit of an eye opener because it was, it was an office environment. It was nine to five, but it was brilliant for cutting my teeth. It gave me all of those fundamentals in um, commercial design. So we would work on collections. We'd have set dates for those collections. Um, I was the junior designer. I had two designers above me, so I could learn loads from them. We'd have proper design meetings. It was it was very much nine to five, not much going out to do research. So it's still, to me, it still wasn't quite um, this sort of creative freedom I'd imagine. Sure. But you have deadlines, and you've got you've got yeah. to get these collections done on time. The jewelry was all made in a, um, a factory in Thailand, so I wasn't making anything by this stage. I was just doing technical drawing, yeah. but that. That was a great, um, a great experience. The factory was brilliant. Um, it was this, they were very close. So the company I worked for and the factory owners were very close. They were like family. They'd been working together for sort of, God, 25 years plus. Um, you know, they'd go to like family weddings and things. It was a really lovely environment. The factory, um, I went over sort of my second year I was there, I think. And it was this brilliant, bright, clean space with these like highly skilled craftspeople. And seeing someone carve one of my jewellery designs out of wax the first time was amazing. So seeing it on the paper and then seeing someone actually making it. So that it was a really, really good experience. And I'm so grateful that that was my like introduction to it. And I learned, I learned so much. So yeah, I was there for just under three years. It's amazing to see because we just see the piece in the shops, don't we? And you kind of nowadays kind of think, uh, like a machine has made it or something and yeah. probably that is the case for certain things but actually a lot of it's probably s- still yeah like in that way handmade and you don't even think about that no that's it we've become quite disconnected i think from um the roots of of we're calling it product to sort of encompass everything from food to clothing and we have we I, th- I think because it is the way it's presented to us in supermarkets the way it's packaged up yeah you can get stuff within 24 hours it's there's no wait for anything anymore yeah. and the amount as well like if you go in a yeah. shop there's like 20 of them yeah. like 20 necklaces all the same yeah and it feels very much like like obviously a mass production line and you don't i don't think we relate people to that yeah. level of work no, I mean, I think the term handmade, certainly like with my business now, the term handmade is used as a sign of quality. Yes. Um, and, you know, all, all of the sort of events I attend, it's your product has to be handmade. Yes. But all of that stuff that I was designing and I have designed through my career, even the, the stuff that costs, you know, $2 or the pieces that are £40, it is all handmade. So, you know, a lot of the product I did sort of later on in my career has that made in China stamp, which immediately yeah. devalues the product but it was still being made by hand and there is that disconnect because because stuff's so readily available i think our pricing system is way out so you can pick up products including food very very cheaply and it would be impossible to imagine that the journey that that's that product has had because the price you're paying yeah so you can understand why people do have this disconnect and why we have lots of people now i know there's lots of creatives who i'm friends with and customers will say well that's a bit expensive and we've got so used to your, you know, your Primark dress that has a button, a zip, printed fabric, yeah. darts. It's been made in China. It's been shipped over and you can buy it for eight quid. Well, why is your, you know, why is your thing 60? Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a curse, I think, of the high street today. Um, and this whole sort of getting everything very quickly. It's, it's what we will come to expect now. So it's very difficult, difficult to communicate that even when something has been made in China, Thailand, India, wherever, there's still somebody making that. There's a person behind yeah. that. And they've had to learn their skill as well. That's the thing. Most of the time, they're highly skilled makers, but there's no credit for that. Um, and people don't want to pay. And it sounds like that, that company you were working with, obviously, were treating or had that relationship with their workers. So there was 
good living, yeah. working yeah. environments, which yes. we can't say for all. And I'm sure you'll talk about this in a minute. No. But yeah, so I think the first company obviously was silver jewelry, so the price points are higher. Yeah. Um, and you know, fair wages were built in, and that's for everybody from both ends, you know, from people working in the UK to the people in the factory in Thailand. It it was produced in a really a good sustainable way as much as a sort of bigger business can be um I left that company after three years and I, I loved it but I was always um wanting to sort of do these I guess back to the university roots of these sort of big crazy designs so I wanted to go into costume accessory design so that's more like what you see in the likes of top shop accessorized yeah, so yeah. bigger statement pieces it was what I was wearing at the time and after I left the first job, I, I got a job for a supplier to the high street, which it was on paper. It was a dream job. We were supplying Topshop, which was had been like Ooh. my pinnacle. Yeah, like, <laughs> I want to work at Topshop. Yeah, look at these, you know, crazy catwalk design type things. And that, when I started, it was fantastic. I was the first designer they'd employed. So up until that stage, the account managers had just been kind of going around factories all around Asia, buying, just buying up the product. Or the buyers we worked with who, you know, belong to the high street chains, they'd they'd buy something. Sometimes they would buy something that had been produced by a maker, like in the UK, mm. hand it over and say, can you reproduce this for, you know, $2? So they, that was how they did business. I came along and then we were able to offer sort of a much more bespoke experience. It was a big step up for me because I was doing the designing and I was also communicating with the factories. Um, and these factories are spread, like I say, all over. Um, but I really enjoyed that. I loved the kind of, um, there was a lot of problem solving with it. Obviously, mm -hmm. you're dealing, um, you know, English is um, a lot of the factory's second languages. Um, there were cultural differences that we had to overcome. And I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was really exciting. I loved getting a, you know, piece off of the paper to the product. And these were products that had like fabric, plastics, glass, you know, they were really varied. So one necklace might take quite a lot of product development. Mm really enjoyable but I started to realize the people I were uh, was communicating with they weren't necessarily the factory owners and I realized we were doing a lot of work through agents right so again because of language barriers we would pay agents to kind of be the middle person and communicate to the factories for us yeah and I sort of looked at our books one day and realized that we had over 200 makers we would call them 200 makers on the books and it was brilliant for getting whatever you wanted. So I'd say to our agent, Joe, right, can you use Maker 48 to make this big fabric Alice band? Brilliant. There it is. Done. Sorted. But it's not very good for really understanding where that product's being made. Mm -hmm. um, my point of contact was the agent, and then he was doing all of the contacting everywhere else. So I started to become aware that actually we were in this, in this chain to get this product to the high street. Mm -hmm. There were many, many people in this chain. And actually, I passed the agent. I wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, it, and the job, so it was quite exciting to start with, with these great costume costume designs. Um, but it was very competitive at the time. And lots of high street retailers were going to concessions for their accessories. So that's where basically they rent rent the space out in the shop. The concession like provides the whole kind of point of sale with all the jewellery. And the retailer takes a cut. I see. Yeah, so we were having to learn to diversify because that was this new model coming in. So we moved on to children's licensed products, um, which really did kill my creative vibe. <laughs> it just, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. We started off with Hello Kitty, which is quite good fun because she had a bit of a sort of trendy alternative edge to her. And I thought, well, this is all right. And then we, we just took on more and eventually, which we were really lucky to get, it cost a lot. We took on the license for Peppa Pig, um, which just, she is my nemesis now. I've, <laughs> that pig took over my life for a good few years. Um, and obviously she was very successful. She still is now. Yeah. I don't know how long the, the programme's been going for. So by this stage, I was designing a lot of like cartoon character pieces that it wasn't, it wasn't this great mm. funky fashion company anymore. No. And then I started to realise that actually where the product was being made wasn't, it, the standards were very varied. Mm. Um, and I worked for a company that really did try to work with factories doing their best. So we we were a member of an international factory auditing body called SEDEX. And they would go around and, and sporadically um, sort of inspect the factories. And I remember hearing one day how one of them had failed. It was a factory in India. Um, the owner had got a tip off that SEDEX were on their way. 
they arrived, the inspection went really well. Yes, factory's great. As they were getting back into their car outside, they looked up and saw all these children on the roof of the factory. God. And the factory owner had had time to get all those children off the shop floor. And we don't know whether they were working or whether they were with their parents. Mm. I and mean, they shouldn't have been in there. Mm-hmm. They, it was unsafe for, for small children. But they were all up on the roof. So, of course, the factory fills the audit. Um, and I think that was the start for me of just realising that actually a lot of that this this jewelry that costs a couple of dollars is it comes at a price yes um as does it, as does all fast fashion yeah exactly it's yeah as they say it's like fast food isn't it it's that initial sugar rush of look at my new whatever and then when that wears off and it's broken and it's in the bin a few weeks down the line um yeah and there was there was just so many more instances that like factories failing audits and then being on factory visits and seeing other high street retailers using that factory to produce stuff Mm. and you're stood there thinking well it's not going to pass an audit so you're doing this and you know that this factory might not be up to scratch and one visit we were on and we got a phone call from the UK to say the factory's filled the audit we had this big order going through with them when we asked the manager she said well um it it failed on the paperwork of overtime and so the account manager Caroline said oh what you know what why didn't you why didn't you pay the overtime and the manager turned around and said, well, you needed 20 cents off of the price of that necklace. So we couldn't pay the overtime. Mm. And I, I, you know, and it wasn't the buyer's fault. They were being backed into the corner from the retailers. Yeah. Like working with the buyers was not an experience I want to repeat. The meetings were really tense. Gosh. We were always having to get these, get, get these already cheap products even cheaper. Mm. And they were pretty vicious in their negotiations. And I think because because everything was so competitive at the time, we would we were kind of trying to do our best to get in with them, thinking, well, if we get in with this big retailer, we'll be set. But it, it never was. They always, no. once you've set a precedent for a cheap price, that That's is what it. they want. Yeah. So there were just there were many aspects to it that started to leave a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, really. And, and yeah. I, yeah, and I guess it's just uncovering, isn't it? And and once you start scrap, you know, <clears throat> yeah. looking into it you can't unsee that no you can't um and also the corruption and and the and the the fact is you probably know that the buyers and the retailers know (laughs) yes they absolutely do they do because they've got they're producing their own products as well as buying in from from suppliers like us and i think the consumer i would hope now there's a lot more information out there but i think there's a element of blissful ignorance um yes yeah. people you know we've got into this habit of wearing new things every time you go to a wedding or mm-hmm. um, you know you go out for dinner and and unfortunately the rise of influencers and there are some that are doing better but the rise of influencers with these yeah. taking the picture of this is what I'm wearing and and the trouble is the quality of what you're buying it isn't going to last no. because you want to buy a new outfit every week okay it, it has to be £10 for you to be able to do that. And yeah. we all get caught in this horrible cycle of buying things. Mm. We're being sold stuff we don't need. It's being sold at a cheap price and the quality is poor so that you have to buy something the following week yes. because it's going gonna, it's gonna to shrink in the, in the wash. It's going to break. It's, the fabric's going to wear. So the whole, the whole model is set up to get the consumer to buy more, 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 more. And nobody is winning except for a, a handful of people at the very top. And it's and with influencers, they're either begin they're either being given the product so they get yeah. it for free, and that's how they can sustain that consistent like changing. Or they do have enough money, yeah. and maybe they may or may not be doing it ethically. But to Joe Public can't keep up with that yeah. level because. And there's this idea of, and we always talk about this with creative business, but this idea of worth and money and worth. And it is that, like, if something's more expensive, you may you may not buy it as much, but you'll damn look after it. Yeah. Well, I remember my grandma, she would have a winter coat and it would be, you know, they would save up for this winter coat and she would have it for years and years yeah. and years and years. And if a button fell off, it would get repaired. If it yeah. needed the lining redoing, that would happen. But the, the quality of the outside fabric was such that this coat, it had yes. been designed to last for years and years. Yeah. And there's that classic saying, isn't there, about how um, a pair of shoes, for example. So somebody that can't afford to buy a good pair of shoes buys a £20 pair of shoes and then they'll have to buy like five in a year 
it keeps that person in that poverty cycle yeah. and they're they're having that you know they can't get out of it because they can't afford the expensive pair of shoes but we've been taught that this product yeah it's okay it's it should half of it should be on the, the shelves it shouldn't have been approved it's you know it's made with glue it's going to break the whole cycle is broken and and yeah like I say no one's benefiting from that how did you manage to leave Peppa Pig yeah well I think it got to the stage where um I just none of it was fun anymore um and I realized the content of the design just it didn't interest me then I had the ethical side of it which you know aside from the the people element there was also an environmental element of what we were shipping over you know it was broken all this kind of stuff so I made a bit of a rash decision um I handed my notice in and my husband he took a career break and we went away on like an eight-month trip it was like a total break um I had no idea what I was gonna do when I got back like looking back now I'm like I don't know if I'd do that again he was able to go back to his job so we did have a bit of stability but when we got back from the trip I just thought I can't I can't go back into that I just like design salaries if you work up to a senior designer it's good wages mm. but I I just I couldn't bring myself to do it and I I was lo looking at all these jobs to apply for and I, I felt really lost I just thought well okay yeah I can go back and I probably can get you know might be able to go in as a senior designer now but what I can't I just can't sit there every day it was making me miserable um and that product as well it just wasn't doing it for me anymore all I could see was the sort of the nastiness behind it yeah so yeah I was a little bit lost for a while and I um sort of on the off chance applied for this we'd moved by the time to this time to London and I applied for a part-time job um it was making jewelry in-house in this very teeny company um I got the job so it was wire work jewelry working with sort of semi-precious stones and the jewellery was, um, it was all like handmade, but it was immaculate. Mm. So um, a lot of it sold in Japan. So it has a really minimal um, sort of lovely linear feel to it. Really good quality. And it was a group of small makers. We would sit around a table making it together. It was a really lovely environment. Mm. Like we used to crack open the wine in the afternoon. <laughs> and, um, and it was such a change because everybody took great pride in this making. And we wouldn't, nothing would be sent out if it wasn't perfect. So, you know, you'd have orders like wholesale orders sort of 100 or 200 pairs of earrings. You're making these by hand with pliers and wire. They all have to be exactly the same and they all have to be perfect. Yeah. But I loved it. I thought this is what it's supposed to be like. It's it's supposed to be that that one pair of earrings that person buys, they cherish them yes. because they've been handmade. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a lovely experience. Um, it was only part time. So I then started looking for some um, design work. So I was missing the sort of the design work. But the making had been great for me because I had got my hands back into it because I, I hadn't made anything by this stage since I'd done a city and guilds after leaving um, my first job. So I hadn't made anything since then. So it had been like sort of six years. Um, so my hands kind of I hadn't realized but they were starting to get back into the making. Mm -hmm. So simple holding the pliers and I was like, oh, OK, I remember how to do this. Got a job um, on top of that, a second job doing um, design work for an ethical luxury jewellery company, which this was back in 2014. There weren't loads of companies doing it. And anything they were doing, the actual designs I felt weren't, they weren't, um, they hadn't been kind of thought about for a Western market. So sure. they were, again, quite a niche, a niche sort of person would buy them. Whereas she was, this this lady, she had kind of set this company up and um, the initial um, pieces were made in Indonesia and Vietnam. So she'd kind of connected with these very small teams of craftspeople. Like she'd been to the workshop, she'd spoken with them. So, and the designs, I love the designs. They were really like, I hate the word edgy, but they were kind of a bit edgy <laughs> and they were really cool. And just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have looked at them and said, oh, they're, they're ethical or fair trade or, and I, I hate that sort of um that vision it conjures up but it it was back then it it was kind of the quality wasn't always great with fair trade yeah, um sure. so you started doing some design work for her and then I quickly realized that she actually would outsource all of the work so she I was on freelance so design jewelry design the marketing photography social media she'd outsourced it all hmm. and I was like okay this is you know so she doesn't actually she's not from a jewelry background um she had the financial backing to do it but she she didn't have any experience and my husband said to me, he was like, listen, it's great and I'm glad you're enjoying it, but couldn't you do your own business because you've got the design skills. Yeah. And, you know, if you've already got that, you're sort of one up on this person who's managing to set this brilliant company up. And I thought about it, I was like, oh, God, he's right. He is actually right about this. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm kind of giving all my skills away to people. 
and maybe I have got it in there but it didn't it took a lot a lot longer <laughs> for me to actually get going with that um that yeah that took a while and there was a lot of um self-doubt and imposter syndrome <laughs> which I'm sure any creatives can relate to that <laughs> like we're our own uh, worst enemy sometimes um yeah yeah and talk ourselves out of it um and it was safer to work for other people for me as well it was low risk I knew the money was coming in I didn't have to put myself out there yeah um so it in some ways it was the easy option to carry on with that we moved from London so I was kind of my hand was forced a little bit I had to leave those jobs although the the making one I was still doing from home which was great um and I got a job in a jewelry workshop so I was right at the back of the bottom of the ladder. I hadn't done any silversmithing <laughs> for ages. Um, so it was learning from the bottom again. And I would spend days just polishing jewellery, which is the worst job. Some people really love it. I absolutely hate it. It was great because I learned how to get a really good finish on pieces. But I pretty much did nine months of stood at a polishing motor. I'd come wow. out and I'd look like a chimney sweep. <laughs> I mean, I was terrible when I started. I remember they probably put me on polishing actually because I melted things. I, I got the soldering torch out it was so long. I remember melting these like really expensive things. So that's probably why they were like, we will put you on polishing for a bit. <laughs> but again, I was back in that environment. So all these little bits are kind of getting in my head. And again, I'm stood there polishing for, you know, seven hours a day. God, well, Where are you at be... this point? So you've been, so we, you grew up in North Devon, you went to yeah. Portsmouth, then you yeah. went to London. So, no, so grew up in North Devon, did my degree in Portsmouth, came back to Devon for my first job, then went back to Portsmouth. My husband's in the Navy. So uh. Portsmouth, right, so we went back to Portsmouth for about nine months when I was doing my sitting guilds and I'd commute into London. Then my second job was in Bristol. So we moved oh. to Bristol for my job. So we lived in Bristol for like five and a half years, did our big trip. Then when we came back, obviously I had no job. And then Simon's next job was in London. So we moved oh. to London. I lived in <laughs> London for a couple of years and did those jobs. And then um, his job finished in London and our accommodation was part of his job. So we had no accommodation. Um, so we moved to Portsmouth. For, <laughs> that was just under two years. That I was, yeah, there's a lot of moving around. And then it was after that, um, we bought a house and moved back to Devon. It was somewhere where we always wanted to come back to. So there were lots of sort of things that ran alongside everything. Yeah. And of course, once back in Devon, there weren't many jewellery jobs. Um, I was kind of thinking, okay, well, I, we could move we could move back to London because Simon mm -hmm. was kind of back and forth. Um, and I thought, okay, well, we've got our house. We've got the security here. We definitely, this is where we want to be. So I was again looking at all these jobs and again, this you should do your own business comes up so um yeah it, <laughs> it, it happened that started <laughs> go simon oh, yeah. well, honestly, he has been another big up him. he's never lost the faith and i don't know why oh, oh goodness <laughs> yeah he, he's well <laughs> i you know he's right to not have very <laughs> patient i think yeah, but that's so wonderful because he's your cheer yeah. he's your cheerleader. He, he is like, actually, yeah. yeah. I do say to him I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't because even when I was sort of going, No, that's it, I'm gonna have to go and get another design job, it's not gonna work and he just kept saying, You can do it, you can do it and we all need that person to sort of advocate for us in our lives, don't we? Because yes. sometimes we just can't see it and my parents were always really good as well. They were brilliant. Um, my dad's always been super interested in it, buying me tools, um, taking me to the university at open day. So I have been so lucky because there's lots of people I know that they don't get taken seriously and that's by loved ones. So I am, yeah, I wouldn't be here without all of that. <laughs> they have definitely like <laughs> pushed me, kicked me up the bum and like, <laughs> and, yeah, that I owe them all such a credit Aww. for that. So, especially Simon, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you are, so you're polishing. Are you polishing, yeah. is this in Bristol? Where are you? That was in Portsmouth. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry, it was very confusing. Yes, yeah, so I was doing the polishing. Um, and we actually, we took a holiday to Norway just mm. before we sort of came back to Devon. And it was whilst looking around the city in Oslo, um, I've always loved Art Deco. I love the architecture, I love the furniture. 
I love all the angles and straight lines. I always say it's a bit of a reaction to my um, mess. I'm very messy. <laughs> <laughs> Not to see it out of uh, the screen, but I'm quite a messy person. Um, and for some reason, the Art Deco movement's always captured my imagination. I've always been drawn to it. Um, and there was this window in the city and I didn't take a picture of it, but I kept thinking about it. And the shape, I kept drawing it. I'd draw it in on my post-it notes, backs of envelopes. And it was there, it was kind of seeping in. And I thought, I've got to make it. I don't know why, I don't know why it was the shape. I don't know what it was about the shape because all this self-doubt of, of not, not being able to do stuff. And my dad had built me this jewelry bench back when I was doing my degree. I hadn't used it for years. It had been covered in like washing. It just was a dumping ground. <laughs> and I cleared the bench off and I got the tools out. And I made this this window shape that I'd seen, and I made it out of copper. And it it, it just it had no promise promise at all. It looked really rough. It it looked awful. It didn't look like anything. And I don't know why, but I couldn't leave it alone. I just couldn't leave it alone. And I kept doing. I kept refining it. And it was yeah. It was almost like again a bit like the beads. It sort of became this bit of this obsession. Um, and it evolved. I saw. I, I sort of practice I mean my like I say my soldering and stuff I had to sit there and I had to kind of remember how to do all these things mm. and the nine months of polishing did pay off because I was like well I know how to finish it properly now which I wasn't really taught on the city and guilds and I made it and it it was this necklace that was the first piece I made and it turned into this whole collection this Enzo Amazing. collection so by this stage we're in Devon and I've got the house we've got has got a shed in the garden I call it a studio if I'm feeling uh, glamorous so I had this actual space to work in because before it had been any making I'd done had been, you know, on a kitchen table or in a yeah. spare room or, and this, my bench, my dad had built, we had out there and I had all my tools set up. So I was like, well, what are the excuses now? Because <laughs> you've got a space to work in. There weren't really any other jewelry jobs in the area. So my like constant job searching, which as you know, when you're looking for jobs, it just, yeah. it takes up all your time. And I was like, well, okay. So I've literally got no excuses now. And I just kept on with it. So this this collection happened, the Enzo collection. And I was like, oh, that actually looks, is it okay? Does it look all right? I don't know. <laughs> kept making and I made another two collections. Um, and then they just sat there for like a year. <laughs> you just sat there. Oh, and I wouldn't show anyone. Um, again, Simon, when we had people come around to the house, he'd be like, show, show everyone. Oh, bless you. him. <laughs> I'd be like mortified I'd be like no I don't it's no good I don't want anyone to see and it was like I look at it now I'm like it was good enough to be in a shop back then I don't know I was holding myself back for whatever reason I just I I don't know I a friend who started a business I remember Simon saying to him well look Catherine likes she should set this business up and he gave a really good good bit of advice actually because he'd worked quite hard to do what he was doing it wasn't creative and he said you can only like set a business up when you're ready it doesn't matter how everyone else says stuff if you're not ready sure. it's not, not going to happen yeah um so this kind of year where it was this jewelry was in purgatory and no one was seeing it <laughs> i got my packaging done i designed the logo registered at the assay office i set up social media which was a really big deal for me because i had no social media presence at all and the social media bit was the bit actually if that hadn't existed that jewelry would still be sat on mm-hmm. a tray in, in the workshop because people started to find out about it. Yeah. So it started with friends and they were like, oh, I think I've, I've just found you on Facebook. Is this you? <laughs> I was like, oh God, it's happening. It's happening. Oh, no. <laughs> and then people would stop tagging me. And I've got a friend who's an artist and she was one of the first people. She shared it on her Twitter. And at the time I was like, oh no. But it was so amazing that she did it. And it was like this, lo- again, this lovely sort of support. Um, yeah. And yeah, people started asking about it. Well, where can I buy it? And I had all like a fully fledged jewelry brand and you couldn't buy it anywhere. It was <laughs> which is a stupid business model, isn't it? <laughs> but it's only one it's only one step away. You yeah. Know? You got it all. It's just one it's just that one leap, let's say. Yeah. A leap of faith. Yeah. To get it to be able to be sold, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. And I think that's it, isn't it? With anything, it is the small steps. Like it took me a really long time to get to the stage where I needed that that big last step and then it would be out there. And I think that's it. It's um, 
even though some days it felt like there was zero progress but actually each of those little teeny tiny decisions or little bits that I was doing little little areas of commitment to getting some natural bulk packaging in like having 100 boxes yeah even though they still sat there again for another good few months <laughs> little little teeny teeny tiny steps and although at the time I kept saying oh it's because I'm no good at this this is why it's not happening quicker it wasn't it just I did have to come to it on my own time and yeah I eventually built the website so yeah eventually made that last step um and I launched the website in uh it was actually in conjunction with fashion revolution week because mm. I thought well that's what's brought me to this so on the final day of fashion revolution week I pressed yeah publish on the website <laughs> and it was out there Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and all your because obviously your background and your knowledge about the fast fashion or your uh jewelry is ethically made and yeah. thought about which obviously yeah. is a big part of your brand yeah yeah it definitely is and it was really important that I wasn't I wasn't just doing what I was doing before but under the guise of oh well it's a small company so it's fine so yeah all of the jewelry mm. is made by these hands in my workshop so that was really important that was one aspect to it um the jewelry's all made with precious metals so again you know that and there's lots of really great um small businesses doing some brilliant costume style jewelry so acrylics and and plywoods and things just really good but for me yeah the fact of using the precious metals means that it can always be reused it can always be melted down so it doesn't matter if you know jewelry shouldn't break it should last a lifetime but if in 20 years time you're not keen on that necklace anymore it will none of it will go into landfill it will always be it has this ability to be i think they call it cradle to cradle design um you know it can just constantly be be reused so that was really important to me that it wouldn't leave any kind of mark um and then other areas of the business so the workshop um is powered by um renewable electricity so that's from like sun water wind which was again it's like quite an, I mean our house is as well so obviously it's in the in the garden but that was really important I was like well even those kind of steps I can do something I don't use any toxic chemicals in the making so um when you heat metal up it oxidizes and us jewelers have a solution called pickling mm -hmm. and that normally is quite a um, abrasive acid but I use it's like a food grade pickling solution so, I mean, I think you'd probably drink it if you, I'm not going to, but I think you <laughs> wanted. So again, just a little change, but yeah. it makes a difference. And I've tried to carry that through with like my packaging as well. So postal packaging, there's no, I don't use any plastic. Um, all of my literature is printed on recycled card and is recyclable. Um, the, my jewelry boxes are, the cardboard is recycled and recyclable. The foam inserts, I'm trying to eliminate them. That's really bugging me at the moment. I can't let it go. It is plastic. So the boxes you can keep. And the idea is you keep the jewellery in them to stop it getting tarnished. Yeah. But I want that I want that phone gone. Mm -hmm. um, that's proving harder to sort out. And I found any kind of ethical choices you make, they're always more expensive. And yeah. you've got to do more research. Like my platers, my gold plating. So I'm going to switch to a fair mind plater but the cost is significantly higher. Mm. So I have to look at that and just think, right, how do I navigate that? Yeah. I feel like I've built up enough of a reputation now that the customer base, if I explain to them why the prices yeah. are going up. Yeah. And at some point, I think with a business, you're going to say goodbye to some people that maybe welcome others. So um, I feel a lot more confident now that I'm able to kind of make those decisions. Um, and I did a little bit of work with Plastic Free North Devon and they actually, um, last month, they did say I can have the plastic free accreditation, which I need to sort of apply to the website. But just a really simple thing, like I was using a fabric ribbon to tie the boxes up on my gift wrap. And they pointed out, well, it's polyester, the ribbon, so that's plastic. And something really small like that, it hadn't even occurred to me. I just thought, well, that looks lovely. It looks, you know, people are spending a bit of money on a pair of earrings. There's a beautiful fabric ribbon. So that's gone and it's paper now. Um, and it is, I think it's every little decision you can make a difference you can tweak it or change it um and yeah it's really important to keep coming back to that so I've, there's loads still to do absolutely loads um but i just keep thinking every time right what can i do so in terms of the actual designing the collections are all made to complement each other um i don't really follow trends so the pieces will be you will hopefully still want to wear them in 10 years time mm -hmm. 
they also lots of the necklaces come with extender chains so you can layer them up the rings i've got two on there they're like stacking rings nice. so the idea is you can buy one and then you can wear it on different fingers stack them together and it's all about the wearer being able to create a distinct look um so these pieces are there to be worn every day so it's really important how they fit the body even if something looks like a statement it will be lightweight it will be easy to wear those things are really important so that kind of um sort of ethical ethos starts from the pencil drawing and it goes the whole way through um and like i say constantly developing it there's always always things to do with it but that's why you do it it's the challenge right it's the because i often think um like i've tried lots of different creative things and i've always got bored except for film it's finding your creative thing that keeps pushing you and keeps you excited and keeps you curious yeah and especially if you're involving ethical products and yes i can imagine that continuously keeps you yeah wanting to try and find better ways and it's so important well it's like you say yeah once once you know about something you can't ignore it and i just think it i could have i could have designed a whole collection got it made wherever mm-hmm. and probably had a big a much bigger company like got a bank loan and it would have rocketed quicker sure but but you know how, how is that happening where's it coming from and and how far do you go before you realize you've lost the reasoning yeah. why you're even doing it and exactly for some people it is like we were talking earlier before this uh it is a buy and sell business but that's yeah. not that's not a creative business in the end and if no. if you go bigger and bigger and it takes you away from your creative passion what's the point in even doing you know other than maybe getting more money but it's like the story which you've probably heard it's uh, a chap on a beach finished his fishing for the day relaxing and a businessman going why are you why are you not out fishing more you could uh employ more people you could get more fish you could make more money so that you could relax and the fisherman just says that's what I'm doing now. I've yeah. done my fish, I'm eat, I've eaten, I've made my money and now I get to relax. Yeah. So it's like the bigger you go, do you actually, you know, you miss a trick. You could be doing yeah. that. And it's a lifestyle. I think self-employed work is a lifestyle as much as anything because we all kind of, even though the pandemic has kind of shifted things a bit with the feeling of uh, stability, in a lot of ways, it is a simpler route to go in, like you said, there's more security about going and getting a job nine to five, where you know it, you're gonna get paid and all of that. So to become self-employed, there has to be a, enough perks, hasn't there? Because there's certainly yeah, a lot absolutely. more challenge in so many places. Yeah. <laughs> and you work longer hours than you did for someone else, but the yeah. point is, is every minute you spend is, it is for you and it's I mean when I say for you like for me that is the business doing bigger things it's bigger it's it's about more than the jewelry um and obviously you absolutely do need to pay your bills but there's a there's a bigger element to it and it's it's when you own a business for me it's that business's place in the world around it so it doesn't operate separately it operates in conjunction and in consideration of everything going on around it and that is something that's really important so yeah just doing something for the sake of it to, to sell more product to get more money i it's again it's a small handful of people that benefit from a model like that and i just i don't it's not sustainable and it shouldn't be how businesses work businesses should be in my opinion a force for good they should be contributing they should be parts of the community um and they should be good places it yeah it shouldn't be just about saving up to buy a yacht or a super yacht that's <laughs> what most of them have got like a yeah we're a going, going to space <laughs> oh, oh yeah that that one yeah you know sort the yacht let's go to space. <laughs> oh, i've got two more questions and i yeah. think we'll finish where do you sell is it mainly online how, how do you sell your work yeah so um I set the website up, which I'm getting to the stage now where I probably need to work with some professional. So I set the website up and then for the first 18 months of the business, I did lots and lots of events. So every weekend I was out like, like Del Boy peddling my wares, suitcases, <laughs> moving them across London. Um, 
and it was I'm really glad I did it because it was very good to get feedback it was really good to understand where I sort of fitted in what works and what doesn't like I've done events and stood there and literally not sold anything Mm -hmm. so it was a really good um exploration and just seeing where my business sat then the pandemic hit so the events had been my main source of income the website was pretty slow it wasn't I hadn't like I say I wasn't investing enough time in it really and you know that's a whole other ball game that I just is out of my tiny mind I don't even (laughs) understand half of it so I was doing all these events and the good thing about it was I was building up a a a brand presence um and people want to trust you when you've got a small business so if they can see you at an event they know that you're real. And I totally understand that. If they're handing over their money online to someone they have got no idea about, they don't know if you're actually going to send them this stuff. So <laughs> really glad I did that. My idea last year, so the beginning of 2020, was to try and get some stockists. And of course, the pandemic hit. So there were no shops open. So as it stands at the moment, I don't, I'm not actually stocked in anywhere, um, which is a bit of a, I think people are quite surprised when I say that. And that it's given me time to think last year. So having that downtime because the website went like this, yeah, like literally like 400% growth. It was amazing. Um, and also being able to do online markets has been fantastic. Yeah. So there is no wheeling cases around the country. <laughs> it's more more um, efficient, let's say. Yeah, it? and it's made me be more connected to people online. So I before I wouldn't have put my face on social media. I wouldn't have done any videos. And that has been brilliant this past year. So the idea for me was always to have an online business. Um, I didn't necessarily want to be doing lots and lots of events. And obviously, when you sell through stockists, they take a big a big hit on the your margins, yeah. which you have yeah. to build you have to build into your your prices. Of course, you do. Um, so I think my next step will be to get in a few select places. So some, I, I mean, my prices are quite varied. And it's the higher price points are the things. Um, so definitely the things with a bit more design edge. Yeah. Those are the pieces that I think would really benefit from being in um, yeah. a couple of sort of yeah. well-known jewelry shops where people are going in to buy a piece of jewelry. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably going to be the next step forward for me and possibly looking at um, a couple of the bigger online retailers like Wolf and Badger perhaps. Yeah. I got turned down for not on the high street when I just launched the business which I was like, no, that's awful. But they said to me, we, we feel your stuff is self-purchase, which I kind of agree with them. Yeah. But it yeah. might be that that's something I revisit again. Um, you know, you pay a commission to them, so you're still, sure. they're still taking a cut, but it's that exposure. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you get access to all their customers. So yeah. yes, at the moment I am online, um, but hopefully we'll see in the run up to Christmas if I can get a couple of stockists. I think it would be, it would be good for me to do that thing. And if you've got, uh, we'll just finish with, have you got a piece of advice for um, any budding jewellery designer makers out there? Yeah, um, make, just make. (laughs) Make whatever it is you want. Um, Like if you want to start making with paper, make with paper. Just get a feel for that. Get a feel for how your hands work. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. I, I always think if there's something that you're really into, in your heart or your head there's probably a reason why you're into it so whether it's album covers or I don't know macrame there's a reason why you like that so don't get swayed while everyone else is doing do you and remember there is only one of you so you are your 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 greatest asset it is everything comes from you so you don't need to like you know obviously with social media it's very easy to get into this comparison trap you just got to, it's a, it's a noisy place, but it's a great place. But just always think of you and what it is that you are into, what you love. And I think if you, if you kind of stick with that, you can't go too wrong and just get it out there. That's the other thing. Cause I procrastinated and you don't learn anything when the jewelry is sat on a tray in the shed for a year, you're going to make mistakes. You're absolutely going to make mistakes and not everyone will like what you do and you're going to get no's. But the more no's you get, you understand they're they're good learning lessons. So like I say, that not on the high street when they turned me down, the website had been up for a month and I was so upset by it. I I wouldn't be upset now. I can see that they were right. So yeah, I know it's really hard. Try not to take things personally. Flip it around and say, right, well, there's a reason that that event said no to me having a stool there. Maybe it's not my target audience. 
maybe my photos aren't good enough mm -hmm. just always always try and like self-reflect i think so yeah you you build you will build up a thicker skin um and if you love it other people will i definitely think that's the case they'll see your passion coming through so yeah keep on keep on yes keep on. great advice thank you so much Catherine it's been so lovely talking to you oh thank you for having me <laughs>